Today's readings are from Isaiah 55, 10 to 13, and Romans 8, 17 to 30. If you need a Bible, you can grab one from the back or you can follow on the screen. Okay. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Second reading, Romans eight seventeen to 30. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, family. How are you feeling this morning? No one knows. It's too early. Well, thanks for asking how I'm feeling. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling sore, actually. Uh, I went to the, the gym a couple of times this week for the first time after a few weeks off. And I don't know if you've ever done that. I'm sure you have. Some of you are thinking, gym? What's that? Uh, I'm feeling, I got out of bed on like Thursday morning, and I just so sore as I got out. And it was almost like it took me 10 minutes just to get over it. Uh, and I realized this is what it means to be over 30, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Now, some of you are going 30, try to be over 50. Um, and I hear you, I hear you. Uh, and some of you are going, 30 is not, not old. And it's not really old, is it? I mean, 30 is, it's, an, it's the new 20, right? That's what they're all telling us. Well, it doesn't feel like the new 20, I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, so how are you feeling? Are you feeling sore? <laughs> are you feeling tired? Are you feeling sick? Are you feeling injured? Do you feel like things don't work the way that they should? 
Has the fact that we all get old come as a bit of a shock to you? <laughs> well, I think you're not alone in that. In fact, a big part of life is coming to terms with the limitations of our bodies. That almost as soon as we begin living, we begin dying. And yet, something within us says, it shouldn't be this way. This isn't how it should be. <laughs> Paul expresses this tension in the passage we just heard read with one word, groaning, an almost guttural objection to our own mortality, to the fact that we grow old, we decay, we die. So as we uh, move this morning into Romans chapter 8, the middle section, we're going to look at this word groaning and what it means and what hope the gospel gives us in it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you meet us where we are and I pray that you will meet us by your spirit this morning where we are. Wherever we feel, whatever our groaning looks like, through sickness or illness, tragedy, disappointment, Pray, Father, that you would give us hope this morning, hope in the gospel, that things that they are this way now will not always be this way. Amen. Uh, so as we uh, come to this, this section of chapter 8 of the book of Romans, we, we think back to last week where we covered verses 1 to 16. And, we, and there Paul, this is the apostle, one of the early Christian leaders, um, reminds us of the incredible promises of God. Okay? And there's a whole bunch of promises in that section. I won't go back through them again, but one really sticks out. Um, and it's through, from um, the early part of Romans 8, verse 2. Uh, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, uh, through D Jesus' death and resurrection, what we call the gospel, two oppressive powers have been done away with. The power of death, which brings decay and ultimately the end of life, and the power of sin, which brings guilt and shame. So imagine that. Two of humanity's greatest enemies, their, their very power ripped out from under them. They lie disarmed and defeated at the foot of King Jesus. And so this should leave us joyful, amazed, full of wonder and delight that we have heard this good news. But perhaps it also leaves us confused. Perhaps it leaves us even dismayed. Because if all this is true, then why is life so hard? It's a tension that's made many people, both in and outside the church, wonder if actually Christians are really just kidding themselves. If we're just kind of following after this imaginary fairy in the sky that doesn't really exist and all these great hopes are nothing but empty promises. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, uh, he kind of anticipates this consternation. And though he's outlined all these wonderful benefits of being part of God's family in the previous section, he now reminds us that we shouldn't believe that that's all there is. In fact, there's a whole lot more to come. He says, our full inheritance has yet to be bestowed. Or in other words, there's a whole lot of not yet about God's promises. And so in the now, 
he urges us to be resilient in suffering and patient in waiting. So this passage is all about living in the now and the not yet. So there's three things I want to talk about this morning. Groaning in the now, hoping for the not yet, and patience for the meantime. Groaning in the now, patient, uh, hope, hoping for the not yet, patience for the meantime. So let's start with groaning. Uh, there's a school of thought, isn't there, that uh, suffering is random. The, th- the bad things that happen to us are just part of the grinding cycles of nature. They have no rhyme, they have no reason, they have no meaning, they have no purpose. To those people, Paul says, I'm not buying what you're selling. Because uh, he says, there is a story behind suffering. In fact, it's a story that involves the whole cosmos. Paul, in, in these verses, suddenly zooms out. He's had the focus has been on me and you and us as, uh, as a people, as a community. And now he zooms out to encompass the whole universe. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So the story of creation's bondage is in view here. And where does it begin? Well, it begins back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, where with one act of rebellion against God, humans brought sin into the world. Sin, because of its very nature and its act of rebellion, separates humans from God. It separates them from God's life-giving spirit. And without God's life-giving spirit at work in them and in the world, then the reality becomes death and decay. Now, God, being God... And king has every right to go, well, enough's enough, or we'll just start again, destroy this world, and we'll give it another go. But he doesn't. He has mercy and allows humanity to continue in the world. Even though that meant that sin, being virus in nat- viral in nature, spreads out through humanity and even into nature itself, bringing with it disease, decay, and death. So the very fabric of creation was corrupted. Now, to some of you that might seem a bit crazy, but think about it. Even today, isn't there a close link between humans and nature? Isn't the world affected every day by our choices, whether good or evil? whether selfless or selfish, whether greedy or generous, isn't the world affected? So perhaps it's not so hard to imagine that when we fell, the world was dragged down with us. Paul says that God allowed his world to become frustrated. Frustrated is an interesting word to use. It kind of has this idea of being unfulfilled, of not living up to your potential. At the moment, my um, son Jonathan really wants to pull himself up to standing on, well, everything really, anything that's above like this high. Uh, But he can't do it. And so the poor little guy is on his knees. He's so frustrated because he knows he can do it. He knows he wants to do it. He knows he has every bit of potential to do it, 
but he can't do it. At least, well, he'll probably do it tomorrow and then forever. But at the moment, he can't. He's frustrated. Creation is frustrated because locked in its state of bondage and decay, it somehow knows that this is not the way it should be. One writer puts it really well. Uh, Charles Cranfield writes, We may think of the whole magnificent theatre of the universe, created to glorify God, but unable to do so fully, so long as man, the chief actor in the drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his part. As long as humanity remains corrupted and alienated from its creator, creation cannot reach its full potential as a witness to God's glory. And we are part of creation, and so we groan too. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. The Bible teaches that we are made in God's image. That is, that we are made to be representatives of God and all he is on earth. And, so, and we have this cultural memory of what that means. We, we know that we're made for flourishing. Flourishing in our relationships, flourishing in our work, in our endeavours, flourishing in everything that we do. We, we know that goodness should flow out of us and into us. But we also know that that doesn't happen all the time. We long for the vision um, that the Old Testament prophet Amos wrote, where justice rolls on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so it's all the more painful that the reality is so different from that, so far from this. We look around and we just see a ragtag bunch of groups fighting it out for supremacy, often at the expense of the poor, of the weak, of the stranger. We're capable of goodness, but we seem to be unable to learn from our mistakes. For Christians, this feeling is heightened even more. I think the Spirit, God's Spirit, gives us this kind of godly discontent with the way things are, with the, with the way the world is as it is. We're, we're given a taste of what could be. Because Paul says earlier that we've been renewed inwardly, that we have experienced a renewal in our hearts, in our spirits. We, we're not uh, enslaved to the same kind of selfish desires that we used to be. So we've got this taste of, of a world without death and decay because it started within. And we know that it should be like that everywhere, and so we can't be satisfied with the way things are. And we can't be satisfied even with the way we are with the fact that we still stuff up and the fact that our bodies don't work the way they should. So along with the rest of humanity, and even along with creation itself, we groan for our predicament. What are the ways that you groan? Some of you are groaning for yourselves. You're very aware of the limitations of your body. Perhaps you're not as young as you used to be and your body isn't working like it used to. Perhaps getting out of bed this morning was a major achievement for the day. Going to church, an even bigger one. Are you frustrated? Do you groan? 
Perhaps you're groaning because your limitations have come, you think, too early. Perhaps an unexpected illness or accident, a cancer scare, a fall, a car crash. Perhaps mental illness has come like an unwelcomed uh, guest into your life. It inhibits your minds and your emotions. And that can be even worse because it attacks the very sense of self, of who you are. Perhaps you don't groan for your own pain, but for someone else's. Sometimes it's even hard to experience the pain of a loved one because it leaves you feeling powerless over them to be able to do anything to help. What are the ways you groan? Perhaps some of you don't feel like you're groaning at all. You're young, fit, healthy. You feel kind of invincible. You study all night, party for the rest of the night, get up in the morning and climb a mountain with no ill effects. But you know, bodies break down eventually. And you know this, but this seems very far away. It's a different reality. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the Bible says enjoy the time of your youth, but it can be fraught in a culture that fears death in all its forms. Because new generations are growing up in a world where wealth and technology is being used to fend off decay. I saw a TV show recently with Jackie about preventative Botox. You heard about this? Young people in their 20s are getting Botox not to fix something, but to prevent it. They're perfectly fine, not a wrinkle in sight, but getting Botox because they don't want one. This is where it's a symptom of a generation terrified of death and ill-equipped to handle the inevitable decline of their bodies. And finally, you might be someone who doesn't just groan for yourself and others, you groan with creation. You are acutely aware of the suffering of the natural world. In fact, I suspect that many people in our city, Melbourne, uh, would resonate with Paul's words even if they aren't Christians because they feel the frustration of a world that's not living up to its potential. A world that is clearly suffering under the weight of humanity not living up to its potential. And there's a new note of hopelessness to these groans, I think I've heard. The popularity of dystopian movies and books suggests to me that the optimism we once had that we can change the world and fix everything is kind of dissipating now. People who once envisioned a man-made utopia, probably fueled by the internet, which is nothing bad could possibly come out of, hasn't really eventuated, and that's deeply disappointing. I saw a Facebook post uh, recently from someone uh, who just participated in a clean up the Maribyrnong crew, you know, up and down the river just here, picking up rubbish. And they posted about it, saying, hey, this is a great thing to do. And I read one of the comments which basically said, yeah, that's a great thing to do. Pity it's ultimately futile, because <laughs> the world's going to end anyway. Whether you groan for yourself, for others, or for the world, it's easy to lose sight of hope. Many have asked, is there any point to it all? Where is God in all this? Does God even exist? Does he care if he did? Well, God did not subject his precious creation to frustration for no reason. He did it so that a thread of hopefulness could be woven through the story.
Even in the first pages of Genesis, there are hints of a great reversal. A promise of one to come who would crush darkness under his heel. A future moment when the curse that holds creation in its grip would be broken forever. Sin and death came through the first humans and spread out into the world in the same way redemption and restoration is spreading out from a new representative, a new Adam, Jesus Christ. And because of this good news, we can groan in the now while hoping for the not yet. I came across this fascinating article um, in The Independent uh, a little while ago. It's called, What I've Learned as an Atheist from Dating a Devout Christian. Well, this will be interesting. Let's have a look at this. As I read down, uh, it was very raw, a great article. I uh, highly recommend a Google. But this, this quote uh, caught my eye. This guy says about his girlfriend, she doesn't fear death, my girlfriend. She doesn't crumble when people she knows pass away. She cries, of course, but she doesn't fall apart. I envy that. I'm a mess when it comes to death. I don't cope well. It feels so final to me. I look at her and I long for the comfort she finds in Christ. In other words, something that this guy finds deeply attractive about his Christian girlfriend is a hope. And Paul writes about this exact hope in verses 24 to 25. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all, for who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. To become a Christian is to, save, to be saved out of hopelessness into hopefulness. It's to gain one of the most precious and treasured gifts of our adoption as God's children, hope. And Christian hope is a bit different from the way we usually talk about hope. We generally talk in terms of um, hoping against hope. You know, come hoping that something good might happen, but being very aware that it might not eventuate. For example, every footy team hopes that their team will win the, win the grand final, but they don't know. They might, they might not. Largely depends on well, how good the team is doing that season, but even then, even if they're winning every game, doesn't mean that they necessarily will win. That is hope, but it's not a sure or certain hope. Let's look at another way. Imagine someone stranded in the bush at night. They hope that the sun will rise so they can see where they're going and get out to civilization. That is hope too, but it's not an uncertain hope. It's a certain hope. It's a sure hope because they know that the sun will rise. They don't know when necessarily, but they know that it will happen. Christian hope is for Jesus to do what he promised and to return again to this world. And that is a sure and certain hope. Paul wants us to know what's going to happen on that day. In verse 23, he says, We wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's a bit confusing. Aren't we already adopted? Paul's just had spent a number of verses talking about our adoption. Has it already happened? Well, yes, it has. But Paul has in mind a day when our adoption is made public throughout the cosmos. 
a day when every corner of the universe echoes with a song of the mercy and grace and love of God towards his children. And that is the day, Paul says, when all groaning ceases, the redemption of our bodies. Whether that day finds us dead or are still alive, we will be resurrected and renewed. God's life-giving spirit will again flow through us and give us new resurrection bodies that last forever. Bodies that don't sin, don't decay, don't grow old, never die. And that the power of that life-giving spirit will be so awesome on the day that it will flow out not just from us, but throughout this world, even throughout the universe. And the cycles of death and decay will grind to a halt. An internal existence of life to the full will begin. I love how the prophet Isaiah imagines that day. He writes, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Family, our inheritance with Christ is nothing less than a new universe to live in and reign over forever with Christ. Creatures and creation, perfected and glorious, resounding with the worship of their creator. And we can hope for that day with a certain hope, even though no one knows when it will be. And it's that hope that comforts and strengthens us in the present. Hope allows us to be okay with the frustrations of life. Hope is how we can cry but not be crushed. It's how we can groan but not give out. With hope in our hearts, we can forge ahead, bearing with our sufferings, yet with eager anticipation, wait for what God is going to do next. This true and certain hope grows in us. Patience, actually. Patience for the moment. Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I'm terribly impatient. Patience, for me, is very hard. And it's doubly hard, I think, in the midst of suffering. It's hard to be patient when you are overwhelmed with groaning, when each day is a slog, when disappointments abound, when your body is giving way. So Paul gives us three truths in which we can find hope to help us to be patient even in the most brutal times, to help us cry but not be crushed. Three things, and I'll finish with this. First of all, wordless prayers. Uh, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. When our problems seem so vast and incomprehensible, prayer seems pointless. Not just pointless, but impossible. How can you pray when all you have are wordless groans and just raw emotion bubbling up to the surface? How can you pray? Well, God's promise is that you can still pray and even more that your prayers will be answered. Because, as Paul's already said in chapter 8, God's Spirit lives within us. 
So he knows our groans better than we do. He knows our thoughts. He knows our pain. He knows our weakness. And he's actually able to take these internal groans to the Father for us. And amazingly, even in the Spirit doesn't kind of translate it into nice words to give to God. No, he groans to the Father on our behalf. He doesn't need to translate because the Father knows the mind of the Spirit even as he knows our minds. As one writer puts it, God himself puts his own life, love, and energy into hearing our prayers. And he answers, though not always as we expect, because he doesn't necessarily rescue us, rescue our bodies from suffering, but he will do something even more amazing. He will assure us of another resource, another truth that we can trust in his providence. God's providence is his promise that he can do something that no one else can do. And that is that he can use all his sovereign might to use even evil and suffering for good. It led Paul to pen what's probably one of the most comforting and well-loved verses in all the scriptures. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In our limitations, it's so hard to figure out how can any good could come from the things that make us groan. It seems impossible that illness and tragedy, the loss of life, natural disasters, could possibly be anything but frustratingly pointless things that, that just break us. And yet just because we can't see a solution doesn't mean there isn't one. The life of Joseph in the Old Testament is a compelling example. A man who suffered more than any of us ever likely will. And yet at the end of it all, looked back and could say, God intended it all for good. In fact, through him and his suffering, salvation was brought to a whole nation. Paul gives us a sweeping view of the kind of good God is working all things together for. That his providence has a purpose, that it has an outcome. And that is that it's preparing us for eternity. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Before even the universe was created, God's plan was to remake sinful people into the image of Jesus, to be adopted sons and daughters with a family resemblance of the natural-born son of God. Christians often talk about becoming like Jesus, kind of a trite thing that we often say to each other, you know. God's making you like Jesus. And it can be really intimidating because we go, well, how can I be made made like Jesus? Isn't he the son of God, divine, perfect? It's actually sometimes not a comforting thing to say at all, but kind of demoralizing because we just see the gap between us and Jesus so clearly and it's immense. But we've got to be nuanced here because that's not exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying that God is conforming us to the image of Jesus. And this reminds us of what Jesus came to be. Not just God made human, but human 
in the way that humanity was always meant to be. We are being made into the kind of humans Jesus is and always will be, true representatives of God on earth. A community of redeemed people who, despite our own groanings and tears and crying, can act with love and service, that we can be part of God's restoration plan to see all things made new, even in the now. God's work in us cannot be stopped neither by suffering from without or sins from within. So Paul writes, verse 30, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, the church is God's first installment of a new and glorious creation. When we live in God's ways, and extend his blessing to our city, when we befriend the stranger, the poor, the weak, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, when we love and care, even if it costs us, we become part of how God is making all things new. And we are being prepared to be citizens of a new creation. Our lives are a dress rehearsal for the great and eternal drama to come. And so Michael Bird, a commentator in the Romans, writes, what Paul tells the Romans is not that we live in the best possible world, but that we are being prepared for the best possible world in the best possible way. That is not always easy to hear. That is not always easy to believe. And so we have to help each other and call each other to faith. As I said elsewhere in in the scriptures, faith isn't the hope of what's seen, but what is unseen. But we can have faith and we can believe together that our present groanings have purpose. They are there so that one day we can look back and find countless reasons to worship God who works all things for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purposes. And so in the meantime, we groan, but not alone and not without hope. Just as Jesus groaned to the cross and to the grave only to be raised in glory, now his story has become our story, his glory our glory, his inheritance our inheritance. And as we wait for him, we can remember that Jesus himself has had the final and last word. From Revelation 22, the last chapter of the scriptures, Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so we can pray, Come, Lord Jesus. And with, even with our friend Daniel, hurry up. Let's pray that now. Father, please hurry. Please hurry to bring the day when all things are made new. When Christ comes in his glory with his hosts of angels to bring restoration to this broken world 
and renewal to this broken people. But in the meantime, Father, plant in us the seeds of hope and faith to wait patiently for your promises of the not yet to become the now. Father, bear with us in our groaning, in our weakness, when our strength fails. Build us up, Father, by the Holy Spirit. Give us strength for the next day. And Father, may we remember that the Spirit that's within us will one day give life to these mortal and finite and limited bodies and bring us into your glory forever and ever. And Father, may we take all this good news and proclaim it as hope for a world that is losing hope. In our city, Father, may we extend the love, the blessing, the kindness that we have to others so that they may feel and taste a glimpse of restoration in their lives. Father, may this be motivated not out of guilt or obligation, but out of love. Love for you, love for each other, and love for our neighbour, whoever that might be, whoever you bring across our paths. And we pray this in Christ's name, who is coming soon. Amen.